10. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're going to be there in a few minutes. We're going to finish today a series of sermons that we've been doing on prayer. And uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but my intention in this series is not to ruin your prayer life. It's not to um, cause you pain while you're praying or cause you not to pray. But it is for us to think about what we're praying and to make it more meaningful. Now, here's the reason behind all of that. is because I firmly believe that God never does a major work in the lives of individuals or in the lives of of congregations without prayer. I'm not just talking about prayer because it's the next thing on the agenda. I didn't lay out and go, all right, let's look at what we've talked about in the last two years. We've talked about um, we've talked about uh, things that we we talked about forgiveness. We've talked about relationships with our families. We've talked about marriage. We talked about money. Oh, we hadn't talked about prayer yet. Let's talk about prayer. I believe that prayer is the most important element that we need as individuals and as a congregation to see God move in a mighty way in our midst. There was a guy that wrote a couple hundred years ago, a guy named E.M. Bounds, and uh, he wrote in this uh, in a book. It's amazing. You know, one of the things that we like to think is that we're the first generation that ever uh, deals with certain problems. We're the first generation that's ever had to deal with this, or we're the first people that's ever had to confront this. But it's interesting, E.M. Bounds wrote several years ago, decades ago. He said, the problem with churches today is we don't need newer programs or better marketing. Now, he didn't use the word marketing, but that was what he meant. He said, God doesn't use programs and he doesn't use buildings and he doesn't use things. He uses men and women of prayer. And so we don't need better programs. We need better men and better women who are praying. And part of my conviction is, and this is perhaps just personal illustration and personal struggles, Part of my belief is the reason people aren't praying as much as they used to is because we've lost a sense of how unbelievable prayer can be. And we find ourselves caught in this cycle of saying the same things again and again and again and again. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've taken some prayers and we've begun to remix them. Now, I heard from some of you this week and I'm not sure if the bell illustration was good last week. You remember the bell illustration where you hear? Do you want me to remind you of the bell illustration? I got it right here. It's right here. I got a text on Sunday afternoon that said, just want you to know that when we bowed to pray at lunch, when the prayer was over, our children said, if we had Brother Lyle's bell, we would have been ringing it. I had somebody else just tell me in passing, uh, 
I just want you to know that I can't pray anymore without things going off in my head. Well, part of me wants to say, I'm sorry, but part of me says, no, not really. I want this to be a time when we can re-examine. It's a short three weeks. If you if you haven't been here the first couple of weeks or you missed a week, uh, I, uh, I want to advise you to go on our website and there are links there. You can watch it on video or you can listen to it. You can download it, put it in your car or computer or any of that. If you don't know how to do any of that or you don't want to do any of that, Diane can make you a copy. But it can really, I believe this series is important not just because I think it's cool what we've done, but because if it re-energizes prayer, then it's going to re-energize this church. People all over the country are talking about the need for a revival. Revival starts here. And it starts with prayer. We've been talking about remixing. That's to recombine existing elements, creating a new or modified result. And the idea really has been that we were trying to take what we normally do in prayer and rethink it, to think in a new way about it or to come up with different ways to think. And not so much to say that if you've been praying that way that it's all bad or shame on you, but just we need to rethink some things. And so we talked about some of the common prayers people use. We talked about the fact that a lot of times people start their prayer talking about, hey, uh, Lord, I just want to thank you for today. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this weather, however the variation is. But thank you for this day. That's kind of like our our launching off point or I'm getting into the prayer kind of thing. And then shortly after that, we say, Lord, bless us. Bless me. Bless what we're doing. Bless this activity. Bless what's about to happen. Bless us. Bless us. Bless us. And we follow that with, and Lord, just be with us. We're about to go into this place. Lord, just be with us here. Lord, we're right here in this church. Lord, just be with us today. Today, we're going to talk about the third one of those, which is to watch over and protect us. And then we're going to look, or we're not going to look at this, but this is one that people add on at the end sometimes. And Lord, just forgive us for all our many sins. We talked about confession a few weeks back. And so we've been focusing on those three in the middle. And the first week, the idea was that saying bless us in some ways is kind of asking God for more of what he's already done. Or saying to God what we have is not enough. And the truth is that we looked at the book of Ephesians and we realized that what God has given us, if we are followers in Jesus Christ, is that we have been blessed. If we are followers in Jesus Christ, if we have believed in him, if we are following him, if we were if our lives are committed to him, then we have been given justification from our sins. Our sins and our guilt have been wiped away. If we believe in him, then the Lord has washed over those sins. He looks at us now as if we've never done it before. He has given us the promise of a future. He has given us strength for today. And so we said, instead of saying, Lord, bless us, we begin to pray, Lord, how can I bless you? How can I, with my life, honor and give glory unto your name? And then we talked about the second, last week we talked about the the be with us. Lord, we just want you to be with us. And that, If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we are followers of his, then he has promised us not only is he with us, but that he lives in us. 
that if we are followers of Jesus, that it's not just that he walks along beside us. It's not just, uh, you remember the footprints poem? It's not just that he's with us on the sand keeping footprints. The truth is, he lives inside of us. It's better than he's with us. He lives inside of us. And so our prayer becomes not, Lord, be with us, because we already realize that you're with us and you're in us. But my prayer is, Lord, that I would be an accurate representation of who you are. Lord, that you would live through me. The big concept last week was that in the Old Testament we have that the presence of God often manifests itself in physical ways so that the people of God would understand he was with them. And so you had the fire and the cloud with Moses' day. You had uh, God descending in fire on Mount Carmel with Elijah. You had um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace and the man walking with it. So God's physical presence shows up. In the New Testament... We have the presence of Jesus, that God is with us, Emmanuel. And so God's physical presence was in the person of Jesus. But the reality is that just as his physical presence in the Old Testament was in physical appearances and the beginning of the New Testament is with Jesus, the reality is that today God's physical presence on this planet is us. And that we need to live that out. And so today we're going to take the third one of these. And the one that we're going to look at is this concept of, Lord, watch over and protect me. Now, I mentioned a couple of times that kind of the cousin of that is lead, guide, and direct us. It's not the same. And we're going to focus more on the watch over and protect us. It's it's similar. Uh, It's Labor Day weekend, and so people are traveling. Some of our congregation are traveling. And uh, one of the ways that we do this when we're traveling is we pray God for traveling mercies, right? We ask the Lord to protect people as they go. And uh, when we pray, we pray for uh, the Brazil team. We pray that the Lord will keep them safe. When we pray for the New York team, the Lord will keep them safe. As Wallace Ralph is traveling up and down to Lynch, Kentucky, 14 times a week or whatever, you know, a couple, 10 times a year, we pray for Wallace to be safe in his travels up there and back. We, we, we pray for the Lord to um, watch over people. We pray for them to be protected. And you say, surely, Pastor, you're not going to tell me that saying watch over and protect us is a bad thing. You've got your Bibles open to the book of Acts, correct? Okay. Leave your finger there or mark it, and let's go to Psalm 33. You say, in fact, Lyle... I know that the Bible talks about the Lord watching over and protecting his people. So why is that a bad thing? Verse 18 of chapter 33 in the book of Psalms says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. See, he's watching over us. On those who hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Amen. Pastor, there it is. Watch over and protect us. It says right here in Psalms, the writer of this psalm says, the Lord is watching over and he is protecting us, so we need to pray for them. And you know what? You're right. I'm not going to tell you today that this is a bad one. But I think there's something we need to add. Now, how many of you grew up in church? Let me just see. That's most of us, right? When I grew up in church, there was this 
new concept they were trying out a lot called children's church. Now, not in the service. I'm talking about outside the service. And so we would go into this basement and there would be somebody down there that would do children's church for us. And what was interesting is they had this board, but it wasn't any normal board. They called it a flannel graph. Anybody know what a flannel graph is? All right. And they used to take on the flannel graph and they used to show me all these unbelievable stories. My favorite part of children's church, I mean, the juice and the cookies were good. But my favorite part of children's church was the flannel graph stories. And they would take a character and they'd put them up on the flannel graph and it'd be a progressive story. And they would walk you through the story and you'd go through the whole thing. And here was the thing that I learned in flannel graph stories in Sunday school as a child. First of all, I learned that all the really good action happened in the Old Testament. Right? And that God's people always won. That was it, right? I mean, I remember the story of Daniel. You know the story of Daniel. Daniel was in trouble, and they were going to throw him into a den of lions. And for whatever reason, my teacher always made a big deal about how hungry the lions were. I mean, there were the pictures on the flannel graph showed that the mouths were open as Daniel was being lowered into the lion's den was going in there and obviously people were concerned because the king got out there and he prayed all night that nothing would happen to daniel and that daniel's god would be right and guess what happened daniel's god delivered him from the lions and then we heard the story i've already mentioned about shadrach meshach and abednego i mean shadrach meshach and abednego were in big trouble And they were going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. And that fiery furnace was hot. I mean, I had a furnace in my house growing up that I'd walk over in the wintertime so I could feel the heat. But this was like a really fiery furnace, all right? I mean, it was so hot that the people that threw them in, what happened to them? They died. I mean, you're talking hot. I mean, by the way, isn't that a terrible job to have? What's your job? I throw people into the fiery furnace. That's my job. And so they take him and they throw him into the fiery furnace. And guess what? They get down there and there's somebody with them. Now, most people, most scholars think that it's Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. And so when you get down to the fiery furnace, and the first thing is when you make it down and you realize you're still alive, you realize, okay, we got a pretty good shot here. And then you see the Son of God walking around, and you think, we are home free. Now, it says, when they got out of the fire, you know how you, know how you can go into a, 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 like a really good barbecue place, and you still smell like barbecue two days later? Or, or there are some people that can go into Starbucks, and you know they've been to Starbucks ne- the next week you meet them. All right? They just, the smell. See, you know how when you walk into the church on the day after The chicken dinner. You know what that's like, right? I mean, it smells like chicken in this church for like four and a half months. And then they do another dinner. 
But you know how it just the smell sticks around, right? It says when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get out of the fiery furnace, they don't even smell like they've been in a fire. The good guys win. They're not the only ones. You remember Moses? Moses has got all the people behind him. And they've got everybody ready to go. They're going to the Israelites. They've got them all delivered. They're going to the promised land. Only one problem. They get to the edge of this sea and they look behind them and there's an army there. And they think, uh-oh, what are we going to do now? And Moses talks to the Lord. Moses prays about it. God says, quit talking, get moving. Moses steps into the river and the sea parts. And the children of Israel walk through on dry land. Remember, Joshua, right, goes up to uh, Jericho and it is so fortified that when they get there, the people are like, you know what, Joshua, we could probably just skip this one. We could move. I mean, it's Jericho. God says, you're not going to skip this one. And so they get together. and What do they do? They break up arms and they go attack the city. Is that what happens? No, what happens? They walk around the wall and they walk around the wall and they walk around the wall. And on the seventh day, on the last time, that's when they take out all their weapons, right? Now, what do they do? They start playing some music and the walls came Tumbling down. And the people of God win. Here is the Old Testament message about watch over and protect me. God's people win. Amen. We like that one, right? You know whose story I never heard on the flannel graph? Job. I never heard Job's story on the flannel graph. Maybe because that would have been a little difficult to tell. There's a lot of explaining to do there. I mean, you know, Job was living with his heart completely dedicated to the Lord. In fact, he was the guy that God bragged about when his enemy came. The enemy said, let me have at him. And God said, okay. Job lost his livestock, his family. I don't know how boils would look on the flannel graph. Right? It's not the kind of thing you want to say. And so Job lost everything he had and he went down in a lump and began to weep openly. All right, let's gather around and have some milk, cookies, juice. All right. But Job's in the Old Testament, right? You say, well, even Job, Pastor, when Job gets to the end of his life, it's an amazing thing. Job gets to the end of his life. He gets everything back. I mean, that's the perfect Scenario of watch over and protect me. You took everything away, but you gave it all back. Listen to this verse from the end of Job. Job 42. This is after he's got it all back. All his brothers and sisters and everyone that had known him came before him and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. Who does it say brought the trouble upon him? Who does it say? The Lord. Wait, wait a minute. We've been praying, Lord, watch over and protect me. We talked about in the Old Testament, they always win. The good guys always win. You know, people are always looking up to the Lord, calling out on the Lord. I mean, the message of the Old Testament is 
Follow the Lord and he will deliver you. Even Job is going to give him back all this stuff. But it says here in verse 11 that everyone who known him came and ate with him and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble. Now, like I said, it tells us in just a minute that the latter part of his life was more blessed than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. For the, and I know we don't speak camel, oxen, donkeys as currency anymore. That's a lot. He had seven sons, three daughters. And it tells us in verse 16 that he lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So he saw his kids, their kids, or his grandkids, his great-grandkids, his great-great-grandkids, and his great-great-great-grandkids. But yet we have this verse that kind of sticks out. Just to be honest with you, it's one of those verses that would be easier for me to explain if it wasn't in the Bible. And even in the Old Testament, when you see all of these things happening, what you get a sense of is that the people of God don't always come out on top in this life. Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. And here's an interesting thing that happens. In the book of the Old Testament, books of the Old Testament, most of the time, God's people always win. In the New Testament, so you have the champions of God, the heroes of God. You've got these great men of God, and they win. In the New Testament, all the great men of God, the champions of God, the men after God's own heart, they all die. Painful. Suffering deaths. In case we forget that, who's the main character of the New Testament? Jesus, right? Jesus, the one that we long for, the one that we love, the one that's words are like honey, that that drip, the sweet in the way that he teaches The one who is the God-man descended from heaven that has come to lead his people out. He is the deliverer. He is God with us. He is the prince of peace. He is the lamb of God. And yet his story involves great suffering. Great suffering. To the point that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is praying, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. But if there is any way you can do this other than what's about to happen, then, Lord, that's what I want. But more than that, I want your will. He is so in agony over that decision. It says that his sweat became drops of blood. He is taken and he is beaten beyond recognition. He is suffocated on a cross in the noonday sun. He is tortured and suffers for you and for me. The main character of the New Testament is glorified in his suffering. And after his death, he he rises again from the grave. And you would expect, well, he paid the price. It's over. Give... Praise and glory to God. That means that everybody that follows him is going to be blessed and they're going to have the Lord with them and everything's going to be great and they're not going to encounter any difficulty. 
Is that what happens? No. I mean, from the moment Acts begins, the church, the people of God are in trouble. And in Acts, we we, we begin to see this story unfolded. We come to a particular interesting point here in Acts chapter. um, We're going to start. We're going to be in chapter seven somewhat. But uh, I want to start in chapter six. And chapter six is the chapter, the beginning of that's where we preach on. We talk about deacons and the reason for deacons. And we talk about all that happens there. But I want you to look at who they chose as deacons. And in chapter six, verse five, it says the proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, of those seven men that were chosen, which one do they give a character description of? Stephen, right? Philip, we know, was a great man. We believe Philip is Philip of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. And so we know he's great, but it doesn't say anything about Philip. Procurus, I'm sure, was a fine, upstanding follower of Jesus Christ. Nicanor was probably a great man of God. Timon was a guy that was faithful to the cause. Parmenius and Nicholas were people that were following after the Lord. But the one that they say, Stephen, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that he would kind of be the leader of that group. He's listed first. He's given a character description. Stephen was the man. He was a leader. He was a follower of Jesus. He believed. He had faith. The Holy Spirit was evident in his life. In fact, if you walked around Stephen, you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was a follower of Jesus. And so, verse 8, we expect, and Stephen went and preached unto all the world, and the people became blessed with what they said. Is that what happens? Just in case we forget it, Not only is Stephen full of wisdom or of faith in the Holy Spirit, it tells us in verse 8 that Stephen, just in case you forgot, you know, Stephen, this is a guy full of God's grace and power. He did miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose. And they began to argue with Stephen. But there was a problem. In a debate, nobody could stand up to him. Verse 10 says they cannot stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. They secretly persuaded some to say, we heard Stephen speak some words against the Moses and against God. They stirred up the people. They seized him. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses. Does this sound familiar in any way? Verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Now, that was not they were admiring or encouraging and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel now let me just say that real quickly that doesn't mean it was a sweet baby face when we talk about babies well they've got the face of an angel what this means here is that Stephen was in their midst and when they looked at him they saw a man who appeared as an angel of the Lord, a messenger of God. When the Old Testament or the New Testament says people encounter angels, what's their first reaction? Can I cuddle with you? Is that their first reaction? What is it? They are scared to death. And so these guys look at Stephen and think, "Woo, we don't know what to do with him. 
So in verse seven, chapter seven, verse one, the high priest says, are these charges true? And Stephen decides this would be a good time for a sermon. Now, it's an only a one chapter sermon. You can read it in about five minutes. And some of you say, boy, it'd be great to have one of those every now and then. I may do that one day. But not anytime soon, probably just maybe one day. All right. And you get through this whole thing. And in verse 51, Stephen, who is here in front of the Sanhedrin, chapter 7, verse 51, you can look at it. It's talking about Jesus. He points toward Jesus. He talks about the need for Jesus. He talks about what needs to happen in their lives. And in verse 51, these men who hold his life in their hands, he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Probably not the wisest decision if you're wanting to go free. You are just like your fathers. You resist the Spirit of God. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him who you received the law that was put in effect through the angels. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. I, I don't know that I've ever had somebody gnash their teeth at me, but I don't want to. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, I want you to visualize the scene here. Stephen has a chance to be politically correct and perhaps continue his life and move on to continuing to do some things for the Lord. But instead, he chooses to boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus. The result is that they all rush him, they grab him, they pull him outside, and they begin to stone him. Do you know what stoning is? How do they stone people? They, they throw rocks at people, but not, not pebbles. They throw boulders. Big rocks. Pick them up and throw them on him. Now, what was the purpose of stoning? What were they trying to do to the person they were stoning? They were trying to kill him. And so you have Stephen having boulders flung at them. And he gets an opportunity to pray unto the Lord. And in the midst of him being able to pray unto the Lord, if there was ever a time for watch over and protect me, this would be it. I mean, really, if you, if you were caught in a place where someone had pulled a gun to your head or had pulled a knife and threatened you, if you had a mob of angry people descending upon you and you knew their intentions were not good, this would be the time for watch over and protect me. But is that what Stephen prays? 
It's not. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he fell on his knees. Now imagine boulders hitting him, being pelted continuously. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Let me just tell you, I pray watch over and protect me. I pray for my kids. I pray for my wife. I pray for people in this congregation. I pray for missionaries that I know. And part of my prayers is, Lord, watch over and protect us. But I think that is secondary to something that's more important. And what Stephen realized here is that his life at this moment, what was most important was not God deliver me physically from this moment. What was most important at this moment was saying to the Lord, Lord, in this moment, use my life as a beacon, as an example, as a testimony of who you are. I don't think it's coincidence he quoted words that Jesus quoted on the cross as he's being killed by the same people that killed Jesus. I think what he's saying there is, hello, this is whom I follow. This is the person that I am devoted to. I have given my life to the cause of Christ. And he wanted the guys who stood at the foot of the cross to realize this man is a follower, a student, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the most important thing in his life is not his own personal safety. It is that the message of Jesus Christ is delivered. Let me ask you a question. What's the most important thing in your life? Because the truth is, for most of us in an American culture, the most important thing is that we're watched over and protected. That we're safe and secure. Why do you think the mood of the country drops in proportion to the stock market? Why do you think the mood of the country changes when there's a perceived attack? I was driving in this morning and I uh, heard on one of the Christian radio stations. It's one of those areas I'm about to tread in and I, well, I'm going there anyways. I heard on the Christian radio station that they're, they're signing a petition to include prayer in the New York official memorial for the 9-11, okay? And I 100% agree, prayer needs to be there. But most of us in this room, 95% of us in this room, remember 10 years ago. And the thought that prayer wouldn't be included in something that happened right after 9-11 was as crazy 
today to think about prayer not being included for us. I mean, the whole world thought, absolutely, prayer. I mean, everybody was praying. Now, why were they praying? Were they praying because the glory of God was more important to them than anything that had ever been? Were they praying because they cared more about God using them for his glory and for the global purposes that he intended us? Were they praying because they wanted God to do something in the midst of their hearts and lives that would radically change how we lived and loved and did business in this country? Or were they praying because they wanted somebody to watch over and protect them? Now, again... I pray it all the time. I'm not saying that that's a bad prayer. What I'm saying is the prayer that needs to become part of our lives is, Lord, no matter what my circumstances, use me. No matter what, if I lose everything I've got, Lord, use me. Lord, if, you know, I mean, if the people down in the cancer world, Lord, I don't want cancer. I don't. I don't, I've seen what cancer can do. I don't want that. But if there are people in the cancer ward that need to know about you, send somebody, even if it's me, to tell them about you. I'm going to tell you something that doesn't surprise you, those of you that are my age or older. In general, the longer I live, the more I respect and I'm in awe of some of the things my parents do. Some of you have met my dad. I mean, my dad is uh, a guy that, that has inspired me in many ways. Uh, we're, uh, I mentioned last week Eli's playing baseball. Right now, I, I remember hours upon hours of playing baseball with my dad. It was my dad's love. That's, I love it. He's a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Um, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan because of that. He took me to, it was almost like you don't have a choice here. This is what we're doing. Um, he, he's a Tennessee fan, football to the core. And there were days in my youth when I walked away from that. When I was the prodigal child who rooted for teams like Memphis and Vanderbilt. And my dad just loved me through that. Help me to see the error of my ways. My dad had um, six bypasses uh, eight years ago. And survived that, worked through that, and we thought, well, these major things have kind of gone through. And then last year, he was diagnosed with a small tumor in his lungs when they went in they um, when they went in they it was right at the crux of where the bronchial tube split off so they had to take his entire left lung and so I mean they didn't think they were going to have to do that they didn't know they were going to have to do that I still remember the look on his face I was the first one that told him they had done that because a nurse came in and kind of hinted at it and he didn't know what had gone on I called dad, you know, I mean, we're back and forth. And it's one of those times when I, I couldn't be there as much as I'd like to have been. And we were talking one day and he said, well, I'll, I've just decided something. And I said, well, what's that, dad? He said, I've decided that if the Lord is going to allow me to have this, then there's no reason I don't just use it for his glory. And so 
I'm going to talk to everybody I know or can get to know in that chemo lab about how good God is to me. Dad has spent some time, he hasn't, but we have, in critical care waiting rooms because of that. And Dad, last year when my grandfather was in the midst of that and in critical care and he was with mom, he realized that in Dyersburg they didn't have a good system of kind of giving people anything. And so Dad just decided before he goes to church on Sunday mornings, he's going to go by the critical care and ask those people if there's anything he can get them. He stops by uh, in Dyersburg. You don't have a lot of choices for breakfast food. And so he stops by McDonald's or they've just opened a Chick-fil-A. So he stops by there and he takes it by and he, he sits and talks to the people in the critical care waiting room on Sunday morning. And he just said, well, I, I've never known dad. And I'm sure in his private life he has, but out, outwardly he's never said, I just wish the Lord would take this away. He just prays that God will use him no matter what. You know, there's an interesting little tagline in this story. It's chapter 8, verse 1, and it says there, Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, who is Saul? It's Paul, right? Paul, who kind of wrote the rest of the book from here on. You know, there's some places where John writes and Peter writes, but Paul wrote most of this book. Now, Paul's story is interesting because two chapters later, actually chapter 8 and then chapter 9. So in chapter 9, two chapters from chapter 7, what happens with Saul? He meets the Lord, right? And we know that part of the reason that he comes to the Lord is because he looks up and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And he gives his life and all of that. But part of what I think was ringing in Saul's mind over and over again was this man named Stephen who was just killed. And as he's being killed, he's never seen anybody act like that. From all that we can tell, that wasn't the first time Paul had overseen an execution. But I believe that in the back of his mind, as Jesus appears and all of that is happening, Paul remembers the testimony of Stephen. One last place I want you to turn and then we're done. Second Corinthians. Not too far over. Chapter 16. Not chapter 16. There is no chapter 16, right? Chapter 11. It'd be hard to get to chapter 16 in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 16. Paul begins to boast. And it's an interesting thing because in the Old Testament, we would have expected him to boast about God delivering him. But in the New Testament, what Paul boasts about is his suffering. Verse 16, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so I may do a little boasting. That's kind of like in today's, I don't mean to brag, but. I'm not talking about the Lord would, but as a fool, many are boasting in the way the world does. I'll boast. You gladly put up with them who are so wise. In fact, you put up with anyone who enslaves. He's saying, listen, you listen to everybody else tell you how great they are. Let me tell you how great I am. 
verse 22. Are they Hebrews? I am too. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? I am too. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And then he begins to boast, listen to all that I've done. I have worked much harder, been in prison more than anybody else, and I have been flogged more severely and been exposed to death more than anybody else. I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Anybody seen The Passion of the Christ? Anybody seen that movie? You, you know the beating that Jesus takes? Okay. Paul got that. But Paul didn't get it once. How many times did he get it? Five. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Here's, here's a funny thing about Paul. One time they, they took him outside the city to stone him, and they stoned him, and they thought he was done. Dead. So they left him, just left him out there. Well, Paul woke up and realized, hey, I'm not dead. And so Paul did what most of us would do, right? He gets up and he runs like crazy away from that town. Is that what he does? No. Paul gets up, walks back into town and say, hey, guys, wait a minute. Hey, yeah, hey, you, you over there, you were throwing one of the stones. Hey, you thought I was dead. Guess what? I'm not. Let me tell you about Jesus real quick. I've been constantly on the move, but in danger, rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles, city, country, sea, from false brothers. I've labored and told, gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And besides all that, I daily face the pressure of you and the concern you lay on me. Here's the point of all that. The primary concern of Paul's life was not safety and security and protection. It was that he was living for the glory of God. So let me ask you, what's your primary concern in life? What's your primary concern for this church? Is it that everything's safe and secure and Everything's everything's normal and everything's just, you know, stays like it is or that that, you know, you, your spot is there and that your Sunday school class is good and all that is taken care of and everything is. On solid ground. Or is your number one priority for this church that we would be used for the glory of God? I pray for my wife and my children all the time. Watch over and protect us. But you know what I pray along with that? Lord, but no matter what happens in our lives, my prayer is that you would use my wife in a mighty way for the glory of your name. I pray that you would use my children in a mighty way for the glory of your name. Well, let me ask you, Lyle, what happens if what happens if 15 years from now, Eli comes to you and says, the Lord has called me to a Muslim country where I can't let anyone know I'm a Christian. And I'm going there to tell them about Jesus. The parent in me is going to be concerned. But I hope I would say to the Lord. Use him whatever way you see fit for the glory of your name. Now, let me just be real honest. If I'm not praying that for myself first, I have no right to pray it for them. 
If I'm not saying to the Lord, use me no matter what for the glory of your name. I have no right to pray it for somebody else. So what's your priority? And what's your prayer?